Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hudson Institute's China Center. It's Tuesday, September twelfth, and we have three topics this week. The first is Miles' reflections on the G20 summit and Biden's visit to Vietnam. The second is the new and infamous Mate 60 Pro smartphone released by Huawei, and what this means for U.S.-China tech competition. And third is a new law being drafted by the CCP, which would punish Chinese citizens for clothing that offends the regime. Miles, how are you? Very good, Shane. And before we、uh, go into our discussion today, I'd like to thank our listeners for their support. For our programs, we've also、uh, produced two episodes in Chinese.、Uh, that's monthly, so、uh, we got tremendous response from the listeners. Thank you very much, and we'll keep doing、um, what we're supposed to be doing and uh, improve uh, with your support. We appreciate the support so much. Like、uh, Miles said, if you want to check these out, they're available、uh, not only on Hudson.org at our website, but also on、uh, Hudson Institute's YouTube channel. So for our first topic today, Miles, we're coming out of a busy weekend for President Biden. The G20 took place this past Saturday and Sunday, and immediately afterwards, Biden left、uh, India for Vietnam, where he met with General Secretary Nguyen Phu Trung. During both visits, Biden's message to our allies and partners was one of trying to thread the needle between emphasizing the need to stand up to Chinese aggression, but seemingly trying to avoid criticizing the CCP too drastically. At the G20, he stated, "I don't want to contain China," but he emphasized the need for the U.S.-China relationship to be one that is quote. On the up and up and squared away. Unquote. He followed this by stating countries like India and Vietnam ought to be much closer with the United States and have a deeper cooperative relationship. What are your thoughts on the G20 summit and Biden's trips to Vietnam? Did anything in particular catch your eye, and how effective do you think Biden's messaging strategy is to countries in the region? China always say, you know, the, the source of today's problem that China faces is really United States.、Uh, this is not necessarily true, as you can see from this trip. China's problem goes far beyond the U.S.-China domain. It is China faces a, a lot of countries, particularly its neighbors. There's no com- two countries that are more hostile to China、uh, than India and Vietnam. This is those are two countries that China have fought the wars over the decades. In, with India, I mean the the, the clashes were absolutely、um, tense since, particularly、uh, June 2020, Ladakh. Clashes where lives were lost, and with Vietnam is ongoing. I mean, since 1970s, China has uh, uh, launched uh, no fewer than six military actions against Vietnam, ranging from full-scale invasion in February 1979 to、uh, decades-long shelling and harassment of Vietnam、uh, in the 1980s. So even today. China's claim in、uh, South China Sea has、uh, generated enormous resentment from the countries in the region. The leading, most defiant country against China's claim in the South China Sea in the Southeast Asia is Vietnam. So this is、uh, something that President Biden went to these two places and、uh, to secure American support for these two countries. So it's、uh, actually a very important message as to whether there should be a containment policy for China or not. This is not basically how outside countries wants to contain China. It's being contained by its own behavior by other countries. Everybody is careful and keep a watchful eye on China's revisionist、uh, ambition. 
I want to press a bit further on something Biden announced at the G20 summit. That is the unveiling of a new economic corridor linking India, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, In other words, what seems to be something like a U.S. answer to the Belt and Road Initiative. This was announced alongside leaders of India, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the European Commission. And it states it will involve massive infrastructure projects such as new railways, shipping lines, high-speed data cables, and energy pipelines. Could you shed some more light on this project? And at, at this point, are you optimistic about its success? Well, it's remained to be seen, right? The leading force uh, behind this is India. India wants to replace China as the force of goodwill to create a connectivity between India subcontinent and the Arabian Peninsula and Europe. And this is an ambitious project. It's based upon transparency, based upon good investment without any like dead entrapment. And this has a strong support of the United States. Remember, the India, Middle East, European Corridor project uh, uh, also included the United States in it. Uh, This is a very significant movement. Uh, We don't know how much economic investment this actually will involve and what form. I think this is an announcement of great importance. The details are uh, are still uh, to be seen. Nevertheless, it's a big one. I just want to circle, circle back a little bit more. G20 is important. G20 shows that uh, China is pretty isolated on most the international uh, issues. But one one very important uh, stop during this uh, presidential trip is actually Vietnam. No country knows China's playbook better than Vietnam. Both Vietnam and China were communist country. Communist country follow the same Marxist-Leninist ideology. When it comes to military and strategic culture, they know exactly each other's playbook. For example, one very important part of the modern warfare is political warfare and psychological warfare. No country in the region, in the world, as I say, knows China's operational ethos of political warfare better than Vietnam because they are graduates of the same school. What worries the Chinese Communist Party more than anything else is the possibility, the nightmare scenario, that Vietnam would sign a mutual defense treaty with the United States, just like the Philippines, South Korea, and Japan. That will be a very serious uh, security challenge for China. And uh, don't forget, it was the signing of the Mutual Defense Treaty between Vietnam and the Soviet Union in November 1978 that prompted China to launch a blitzkrieg, a full-scale war against Vietnam uh, only about three uh, months later in February 1979. This is something that that China has to worry about. And this trip has elevated the U.S.-Vietnam relationship to what's called strategic partnership. By the way, this U.S. policy, this U.S. rapprochement toward Vietnam is completely bipartisan. Not only the Republicans support it, the Democrats support it too. As a matter of fact, it is uh, President Obama who lift the weapons embargo against Vietnam uh, that will have been imposed in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Japan has even gone further. Japan, the country that has a very strong pacifist tradition, has promised Vietnam that Japan will now allow its transfer of Japanese manufactured weapons to Vietnam to counter China. That is a significant development. So Vietnamese-U.S. relationship 
is actually a very important new cornerstone in securing the peace and stability in the entire Southeast Asia. It's significant. The Trump administration also plays a very important premium on developing and deepening U.S.-Vietnam relationship. If you recall, the second meeting between President Trump and uh, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un was held in Hanoi. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's last trip to a foreign country while he was Secretary of State uh, was to Vietnam, and I was on that trip. It was uh, during the height of the COVID. The two uh, uh, countries developed a very common understanding of the common threat felt by both countries. But I think right now, the kind of uh, animosity between China and Vietnam, in addition to ideological strife, it's a more traditional Chinese chauvinism and Chinese sort of uh, its own version of imperialistic hubris. In another development, uh, following the most recent round of export controls, which sought to limit the PRC's capacity to gain access to high-end chips, Huawei, seemingly out of nowhere, quietly launched the new Mate 60 Pro, which uses an advanced 7-nanometer processor that they claim was manufactured completely in-house by SMIC, China's top chip manufacturer. This has been met with a flurry of competing opinions. Some who say this is a sort of damning development for the U.S. smartphone industry, showing China's capacity to compete effectively without importing chips. Others who question whether they actually did develop this technology themselves, suggesting the PRC is finding ways to skirt around export controls. And then some who simply question how advanced this new phone really is. Miles, could you clear this up for us? What are your thoughts on the new Mate 60 Pro, and how significant is this from the standpoint of both competition with China in the tech sector and the export controls we have in place? The rollout of the Huawei's Mate 60 Pro is timed with the Secretary of Commerce Romando's visit to China, and it was supposed to be a humiliation for Romando, stating that the U.S. blockade of a cheap import to China has failed. The Huawei even put out a mock image of Secretary Romando in its rollout pr promo. So it's uh, actually pretty, pretty nasty. However, Huawei's claim of excellence is uh, suspicious uh, as the functionality and the technical capabilities are uncertain at this point. Some Taiwanese testers uh, show uh, spotty excellence in the phone, uh, but also there's some kind of overall sort of backwardness uh, in terms of functionality. It was also used as a political game to kick out Apple's market share inside China. Simultaneous with the rollout of the Huawei Mate 60 Pro is Chinese government's new ban on Apple iPhones in China in government agencies, government bureaucrats, uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, layers, and all level used to be just the central government. Now all layers of Chinese government, local, provincial, they're not allowed to use uh, iPhone. And also um, many of the uh, huge state-owned enterprises, their employees were not allowed to use iPhone. So this is basically another uh, example of China using political gimmicks to, uh, to dictate uh, economic uh, operations. But most importantly, the reason iPhone is popular even among the Chinese uh, citizens is not just because it's a good phone, but mostly because it's a safer phone. Huawei is totally integrated into Chinese surveillance system. If you get a Huawei, you will be 
uh, monitored. You'll be controlled by the CCP's censors. China to fan nationalism is to substitute xenophobia for personal information security concerns. Some clever Chinese, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, more and more Chinese are uh, now having two phones. One Huawei phone to show your patriotism and love for the party. Another one is iPhone to protect your privacy and key financial and even medical information. Uh, this is the way to bypass that kind of uh, control. Now, my view is that China has tried to escape U.S. chip ban on Huawei and using various uh, schemes. One of them is just the outright stealing. They steal chips and chip-making technology from countries with good trade relationship with the United States. It has been found that in the Huawei Mate 60 Pro are chips made by South Korean firm of SK Hynix. Hynix chips end up somehow in the Huawei phone. That is not China's chips. It's not Chinese made. It's made by South Korea. So the South Korean firm SK Hynix was horrified by this discovery and rushed to file an explanation to the U.S. Commerce Department, assuring uh, U.S. government that they had complete compliance with the U.S. export control to China. The second thing is that China basically literally just bribed the third countries uh, not banned by the U.S. to buy high-end chips for Huawei. And this is another way to sort of skirt the U.S. export control. The most, the most suspicious case is Malaysia. According to United Nations statistics, for example, in 2022, Malaysia suddenly increased its purchase of semiconductor manufacturing equipment from the United States, Netherlands, and Japan by about $580 million. You know, the funny thing is, in that year, 2022, Malaysia's export of semiconductor equipment to China also increased by precisely the same amount, about $590 million. So this is very suspicious. Another way is uh, basically, you know, because of the export ban, there has been a huge black market. Companies register in India, Taiwan, and Singapore, and they buy a lot of American companies' high-end chips, particularly uh, the artificial intelligence chips made by NVIDIA, and they will sell those chips to the Chinese companies at a price several times higher than uh, their purchase prices. So there is a profit to be made there. To be honest, Chinese government has dealt out an enormous amount of money to steal talents from international chip-making companies. China has been rigorously recruiting chips and semiconductor researchers and engineers through its state-sponsored talent recruiting program. China used to have one called the Thousand Talent Program. That one has made the international backlashes so severe that China has to hide uh, that program and continue under a different name. It's called the Qimin Program. Under Qimin, for example, Huawei company alone has received reportedly $30 billion from the Chinese government to purchase overseas chip-making companies and to recruit cheap talents. So all in all, the export control has to be incorporated with the, with the international plan, and otherwise it's not going to work. So far, I think the Commerce Department is investigating the Huawei's uh, new phone and to make sure that its claim, uh, whether it's right or, or wrong, to, to get to the bottom of it. Another thing is uh, to really uh, understand 
where did China get the chips、uh, from overseas? It is not a terrible phone. It is not the excellent phone, but nevertheless, it's something for us to be worried. For our last topic, the CCP is considering a new law which would ban both speech and clothing deemed "quote detrimental to the spirit of Chinese people." Unquote. This has caused quite a bit of debate inside China, with citizens especially concerned at the breadth of the prohibition. Pointing out the current draft of this law is altogether unclear on what exactly would constitute a violation, as the law is currently being considered. Offenses will be met with up to 15 days of detainment and fines of up to 5,000 yuan, or a little. A little under seven hundred U.S. dollars. One social media user on the platform Weibo、uh, sarcastically asked whether wearing a suit and tie would count, or if they should avoid foreign ideologies such as Marxism. Some incidents in recent months, which might shed light on the impetus of this new law, include a woman being detained for wearing traditional Japanese clothing, and people being denied entry to a concert for wearing rainbow clothing. Specifically, on one hand, I wonder how much this would currently change the legal situation in China, given that citizens are already. Routinely punished for criticizing the party, and two, doesn't this smack of a sort of desperation, fragility on behalf of the party? China is not a country of law. China has never had a rule of law under the communist、uh, regime. So, Chinese government can do anything legally to conduct all kinds of illegal, immoral, and inhumane acts against its own citizens. So, but Chinese government government also understand the usefulness. Of the legality guys, so that's why they try to basically you know to to rule、uh, the nation through all kinds of uh, uh, draconian laws regulating every single aspect of human behavior. This is another example. This is the、uh, a new draft law that aims to regulate basically the basic human actions. Uh, from how you walk, how you talk, or how you dress, everything now the cop would have a legal document to say, "Listen, you know,、uh, I'm arresting you because I don't like the way you, you, you dressed up." And this also created enormous incentive and impetus for corruption, because、uh, much of this、uh, punishment law, the draft involves、uh, financial punishment, and that gives the local police, the local government. A great legal tool to extract money from its citizens. It's a very terrible incident, and I think you know has a great backlash already inside China. Many citizens, of course, they cannot openly challenge the、uh, the law, but they do all kinds of mock jokes and uh, uh, jeering. Uh, it shows that、uh, how out of touch the government is. Uh, to the true feelings of the Chinese people, Chinese government always say, you know, whatever in the U.S. does, whatever in the other countries do, hurt the feelings of Chinese people. There's no political entity that hurts feelings of Chinese people than the Communist Party itself. So this is the irony of the century. Well, Miles, I think that's all the time we have for this week.、Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me, and I look forward to doing this again next week. Thank you very much, Shane. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of China Insider. For Chinese language listeners, be sure to check out our monthly Chinese language episodes. And for those who prefer written analysis, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, China Digest, the best place to stay up to date on Miles' analysis and the latest news on China. As always, you can stay up to date on the China Center's activities at Hudson.org. 